Welcome to Rock and Roll Nuggets, tales from the gold mine, that gold mine of rock and roll where we dig deep to explore the myths, the legends, the lore, and today I will be your host. As always, the name is Heggs, Luther Heggs, but today, today I have a question for you, and the question is, what do you think is the most haunted rock and roll site on the planet? The place where more rock and roll spirits are being drawn back to after they've left this plane of existence because there is something here drawing them, something that has a strong personal connection to their lives. A place that is right in downtown Cleveland, a place that has over 30,000 rock and roll artifacts on display to the public and in their vaults, a place that I worked at for nearly 15 years as a, as a docent, a tour guide, and as an exhibit preparator. That is why I believe, because of all the personal connections I made and all the stories that I heard from people that I trust and I believe are reliable, that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right here in Cleveland, Ohio, is the most haunted rock and roll site on the planet Earth. As I said, I started out as a docent giving tours, and that's one of the first people that I talked to, this docent who had been there for like 20 years, somebody that I trusted. He was very reliable and not prone to telling wild tales. So I asked him, I go, what do you think about the Rock Hall being haunted? I, I hear it over and over. And he said to me, Luther, I'm going to tell you a story today that I think will confirm it, because I believe the Rock Hall is haunted too, and this story might shed some light as to how or to why or to whom is haunting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So one day this docent is giving a tour right in front of the Soul exhibit. Now, it's a case that I've worked on many times, being an exhibit preparator, and he's talking about the artifacts at the very top, a kind of a strange two-piecer, two pieces of metal that looked like they'd been in an accident. They were torn and ragged around the edges, these pieces of metal. They were They had a white background, but they also had lettering on them in green and blue letters that spelled out a name. It spelled out the name Otis Redding. These two pieces of metal that were on display at the Rock Hall were from the fuselage, from the plane that crashed and took the life of Otis Redding. Now, we tell the story at the Rock Hall like this docent was and like I would, not only because of his importance to rock and roll and soul music, because at the end of the 60s, Otis Redding was huge, but because his last performances were going to be here in Cleveland, Ohio, before his life would be taken by that plane crash on December 10th of 1967. So Otis Redding comes to Cleveland, and he goes to Leo's Casino, and he plays his last live performance in front of a live audience, and this place was just legendary. All the great soul artists, everybody from the Supremes, the Temptations to Aretha Franklin, and Otis Redding would play there, and this is his last performance at Leo's Casino. Then, he's going to do his last television appearance right here in Cleveland as well, on The Upbeat Show. Now, The Upbeat Show was our version of American Bandstand, and it was syndicated to television stations all across the Midwest, and they were recorded right here in Cleveland, so Otis Redding will go to The Upbeat Show, and he'll record try a little tenderness the classic song he wrote respect and then he'll do a little duet this great little duet with mitch Ryder, and it is of course the old eddie floyd classic knock on wood so he does his last television appearance his last live performance and now otis redding is ready to go to wisconsin they get into the plane in cleveland ready to go and he does get a little bit of a warning uh, it's a little iffy out there you might want to consider canceling the show the next one in wisconsin but otis says no he goes it's not that bad and I haven't missed any show in the past, and why would I miss one now? So the plane takes off, and they almost make it to Wisconsin, almost because an eyewitness would report hearing the plane start to sputter right as they're getting ready to land in Wisconsin. As if the plane is having mechanical difficulties, this eyewitness says he could hear it sputter, and then the plane will crash in Lake Monona right outside of Wisconsin. And sadly, there will only be one survivor, 
one member of the Barquets, the backup band, the, the pilot will perish, and so will Otis Redding at the age of 26. So we tell this story as this docent was this one day, and as soon as he's done, somebody in his group of visitors pipes up and says, well, I can see them, I, I can feel them. And the, and the docent is somewhat mystified. I mean, what, other visitors? No, oh, no, no, spirits, the rock and roll spirits, the performers, the artists. They are entering and leaving this part of the rock hall right here. It is a portal area. This self-proclaimed psychic then says this, oh, 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 don't worry, don't be afraid. I've been doing this for years, visiting places that are supposedly haunted, and spirits will come back to a place where there are items they had a close personal connection to in life, especially if they died at a young age or unexpectedly. And this is when I get the goosebumps because I know from being an exhibit preparator at the Rock Hall, it is this portion of the museum where the psychic says is a portal area where the spirits are coming to see and feel things that were a part of their life that we had the highest concentration of artifacts from artists who had died at a young age. Right on the other side of the part of the plane that Otis Redding died in, we had we had Janis Joplin's psychedelic Porsche. I mean, this was a car that she drove all over San Francisco. She loved this thing. One of her roadies did all these paintings on it, all these wonderful psychedelic paintings. So Janis would ride around uh, San Francisco, her dog would be with her, people would be talking to her, that stick little love notes in the windshield wiper blades or on the seat. So if there was any item <laughs> that Janis Joplin would come back to see, something she loved, it would have been her psychedelic psychedelic Porsche at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for one last spin. Now, right on the other side of Otis's case is a whole wall of guitars from artists who died at a young age. Now, we didn't plan it out that way when we put them up. It just happened to be that we had the guitar there from, well, from Kurt Cobain, one of his favorite little Fender Mustangs. And, and sadly, he would take his life at the age of 27. But next to him is another guitar. And this guitar, you could tell, was an integral part of this performer's life because it was covered in rust. From his own blood, sweat, and tears, there were stains on it, there was rust on it, and this was one of those performers that really gave it his all. And that's why I say these guitars really meant a lot to these performers. They were, they were an extension of their bodies. It was a conduit from their soul that for what they felt inside. They, they would deliver it through this instrument to the audience, and this guitar you could see was covered, as I said, in the blood, sweat, and tears of Joe Strummer from The Clash. It was his favorite Telecaster, and he died as a young man, too. And then right next to his case, some of the guitars from the Ramones, all who died at a very young age, all of these guitars in one area. But it wasn't only guitars, because in the case next to that one, we had a beautiful gown from, oh, one of the greatest singers of all time, Mama Cass Elliot of the Mamas and the Papas, who sadly would die in her early 30s, and not, as was originally said at the hospital, uh, uh, choking on a ham sandwich. That was wrong. She died because of heart failure. But I'll tell you what case of artifacts in this area where supposedly, as one psychic said, spirits were coming and going from the Rock Hall was from Rock's first great tragedy, the first plane crash, sadly, of February 3rd, 1959, when it took the life of the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. We had, well, we had Richie Valens' roller skates in the case. I mean, he was only 17 when he died. He was a kid. He would take the roller skates on the road and he'd be roller skating in between gigs in the ballrooms they were playing at, but also his guitar. Richie Valens' guitar that he wrote that love song to his girlfriend, Donna, and he recorded it with on this guitar, and also he recorded, well, his signature tune, La Bamba. That guitar was in the case, and one of Buddy Holly's suits. So, at this point, I'm starting to believe that there's something going on at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that it might be haunted, and I talked to another docent, and, and this person says, oh, same thing. I mean, I was doing a tour one day, and... Uh, one of, my, one of my visitors in the group looked like they were kind of ill, like they were sick. And I go, is there something wrong? And the person said, well, I'm overwhelmed. 
I have psychic abilities. I tune into spirits and the spiritual presence, the spirit presence is so immense here at the Rock Hall. I'm just overwhelmed. I have to leave the building and the person did leave. And this docent told me also, this is the part of the Rock Hall where people were reporting over the years, feeling presences around them as if someone were standing behind them. And sometimes if there were a hand on their back or fingertips going across their shoulders, and not only on that part of the rock hall, but on the sixth floor. Now, the sixth floor is a rotating exhibit area. I've done many exhibits up there. And when they first opened the place in 1995, it was a reflection area, all glass plates with the signatures of the rock and roll inductees engraved in the glass. And it was a dimly lit area. We had the music of the artist playing and you would reflect upon the music of the artists inducted and their careers, and people would talk about feeling a presence up there as well, like as if someone were right behind them, maybe touching them. And then I talked to the cleaning crews who worked up on the sixth floor at the nighttime when when, when all the exhibits are down and the music is off and the lighting is low, just work lights so they can clean, that they would report hearing voices in these long circular hallways that surrounded the sixth floor. And they would look for these, they would look for the people singing. They expected maybe a boom box or maybe one of their coworkers, but they would only hear the voices from above singing, but never see a person. This is also the area of the museum when they had the doors exhibit up there, which was kind of a dark and ominous exhibit to begin with, that VSRs, the visitor service reps who deal with the public, some of them refused to work up there. They said the feeling was menacing. It was a, it was an evil presence. They just felt very uncomfortable, and they requested, please do not assign me on that sixth floor. Now, the, the, the story that got me the most was something to do with mannequins. We had this wonderful exhibit once on the Supremes. Now, the Supremes, of course, are the greatest girl group of all time. In the 60s, there would be no other artists, only the Beatles or Elvis who would have more number ones. So we did a whole exhibit on the Supremes and all their wonderful gowns that they wore. But we were having some problems. We had three mannequins set up for the original Supremes, of course, one for each one. There was one for Diana Ross, one for Mary Wilson, and one for Florence Ballard. And they all had microphones in their hands. Now, I had done this many times, modified uh, mannequins at the Rock Hall to put a microphone in. And the problem they were having with this exhibit is every morning exhibits would get a call after a while saying somebody has to come up overnight. One of the microphones is turned upside down in one of the Supremes mannequins in the exhibit. And so somebody from exhibits would run up there and snap it back into place. Now I say snap because I'm familiar with the mannequins they were using. They have little locking ball bearings in the wrists. And the point I'm making is it's not easy for that hand to turn upside down. It takes some force. And that's when I asked this person telling me the story, uh, do you remember which mannequin it was for which Supreme? And the person said, oh, Florence Ballard. It was Florence Ballard. It was all the same one all the time. And I go, well, that's very, very interesting because you do know if there would be anyone supreme who would be unhappy with this exhibit, it might be Florence Ballard because she was kicked out of the band at an early stage due to management and personal issues. And eventually she would die at a young age. So if there's anyone uh, supreme who might be coming back to show dissatisfaction and maybe give you a thumbs down, or in this case, a microphone down, it might just be Florence Ballard. So all these stories are going through my head spirits entering and leaving the rock hall in one particular area people hearing voices and now we got microphones spinning on mannequins something's going on and these are all reliable people but i really wanted to talk to somebody who'd been there longer than anybody else and somebody to me would be you know above reproach in this area there's a person who worked at the rock hall for like 20 years and they worked in the vault 
Now, the vault is where we keep the majority of artifacts that are not on display at the Rock Hall. Everything from Bob Marley's dreadlocks to that severed head of Alice Cooper. I guess we did have his stage head, the one that got chopped off by the guillotine. We, we even have the guillotine in storage, too. So all these pieces are in the vault. If you work in the vault, only a handful of people have access. You have to work in curatorial or exhibits like myself. You have to have a very special custom-made key, and your ID badge has to be electronically programmed to allow you access to the vault. Security has it, the headman at the Rock Hall, and those who work there. So only a few. So the person I'm talking to has worked in the vault for years. And um, when you walk into the vault, there's a huge big table. And I've worked at this table myself. When you get a guitar or some clothing, you'll lay it out on the table, and then you'll fill out an accession form, a form on a clipboard. And on this accession form, say you get a guitar, like one day I had Brian Jones' guitar. You put the information on there uh, on loan from the estate of Brian Jones, and then you put down the make and model. Oh, it's a Vox teardrop guitar. It's color. It's white. And if there are any distinguishing features or damage, and there was a chip on the headstock, you mark all this down on the accession form, and then you stack the clipboard in the center of the table, and then in a day or two, someone will come in and load the information into a computer. So the person I'm talking to that I, once again, say I trust and has been there for 20 years and I cannot divulge their name because they still work there, says they're working late one night. They are working at the computer. Now, when they're at the computer, your back is towards this table, the table with the clipboards on it. And all of a sudden, they thought they were alone. They hear all this clicking and clacking and banging and things are being thrown all across the room. They spin around in their chair and they see that all the clipboards are now strewn all across the floor, thrown all across all four corners of the vault. And that's when I go, what did you do next? I mean, I would have run out of the room. Person says, no, I get out of my chair. I quietly pick up all the clipboards and neatly stack them back in the center of the table. And I go back to work. I go, wait a minute. You, you went back to work after some unseen force throws these clipboards all around the vault. I get looked right in the eye and I'm told, Luther, this has happened more than once. I have to work in the vault. I have to work in the vault late. I do not want to aggravate or instigate or agitate whomever or whatever is in this vault. That's why I just go right back to work. And this is the one and only time we're ever going to talk about this. And it was the last time we ever talked about it. There's more to the story. I'm having lunch a couple days later at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and one of my co-workers sits down next to me. And this is a person who works in the vault, too. Yep, another vault worker. And they're looking at me like they want to say something, but they're kind of nervous because they were new. And I said, is there something on your mind? And the person then says to me, well, I heard that you've been talking to people, our co-workers, about things that have been going on, strange things in the vault. And something very strange and very disturbing happened to me. And I've kept it to myself, but it's very hard to keep to myself because I don't want people to think I'm unstable. I don't want to lose this job here at the Rock Hall, but it's very disturbing. So I'm going to tell you because I know that you've heard stories and that you know something is going on there. So what was it that happened to this person? They're working late in the Rock Hall one night. She's telling me this story alone or supposedly alone, working on a clipboard all of a sudden, this person says, somebody grabs my ponytail, pulls my hair, pulls my head back, and pulls it down, and there is no one there. I go, what did you do? I immediately put everything away. I locked the doors, and I left and went home, and I haven't talked to anybody about it. I've been thoroughly shaken. I can't understand what is going on in the vault, and I don't even want to go back in the vault. About a week later, I run into this person again, the person who had their hair pulled in the vault. They came into work early one day about six in the morning when nobody's around. Anyway, the person's telling me they're walking down a hallway 
And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a ball of light comes from behind their shoulder, past their head, and shoots down the hall right past them. And the person says, there's no doubt about it. It was a ball of light, and it just flew right by me, and it then took off, and so did I. So I then said to this person, do you know what part of the museum this was in? Because I have something to tell you. And the person says, oh, it's right in that area by the soul case, you know, right by the part of the plane that Otis Redding died in. I go, that's what I was afraid of. That's the part of the museum where we've had a couple of psychics and one in particular tell us that that is a portal area. That is where the spirits are entering and leaving the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Person's face just went white. We never talked about it again. So there is no doubt in my mind, especially with these last two stories of people that I I firmly believe were, were telling me the truth because I've known them for a long time, and especially the one who'd been there over 20 years at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has paranormal activity going on. That place is haunted. Now the question is, and for part two, the question will be, who is haunting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Now, in part two of the most haunted rock and roll site on the planet, which we have deemed the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, we're going to talk about artifacts, artifacts that spirits might be coming back to see because we have artifacts at the Rock Hall that were with artists either near the time they died or at the time of their death. And we also had remains of rock and roll artists on display. Yes, their ashes, one we knew of and one we did not. We'll talk about all those in part two of the finale, the most haunted rock and roll site on the planet. And that is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I will be your host. The name is Heggs, Luther Heggs, and the name of the show is, the podcast is Rock and Roll Nuggets, Tales from the Gold Mine, that gold mine of rock and roll where we dig deep, as always, to explore the myths, the legends, and the lore of rock and roll. See you later. <laughs>